Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this being a first-time deal of having our cluster Lenten service all on podcasts. So I don't know how many of you are going to listen tonight. Hope some of you will, and I hope that you will all get uh, some encouragement from tonight's message. Uh, We're not going to have a full service. Um, That would seem kind of silly under the current circumstances, but my wife... uh, has agreed to, and also our piano player, uh, Clicker Merton, has agreed to play a special for you this evening so that you can have a little bit of music to get your hearts in the right place to be able to worship at home tonight. And so my wife, Esther Hall, is going to be singing Be Still My Soul.
Thank you so much for the special music this evening, Esther and Clicker. As we continue with our podcast worship today, let us begin in prayer. Gracious and loving God, Lord, as we go through this difficult time, we pray that you would go and be with us, that you would bless us, that you would guide us and direct us. Lord, there is so much fear that is uh, out in the world right now, and we pray that you would give us hearts of peace and calm, that we might be able to shine your light of love to those around us in the world. Lord, we know that without you there is no hope, and there are so many people in the world today and tonight that seem to have no hope. And we just pray, Lord, that you would be able to use us to share that hope with them, the hope and peace that passes all understanding through your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you for this evening that we can worship you, God. And we just pray that you guide us and direct us, forgive us of our failings, and that you would be with us as we continue to pray to you the prayer your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So again, since our format tonight is not going to be in person, um, but we are taking donations for our conference and our kids. And so uh, what I was going to say about that is if you have an offering that you were wanting to send for our conference, our kids, mail it to First United Methodist Church Centralia. Uh, and just on the part of your check for what it's for, just write our conference, our kids. And I can promise you that your donation, that your tithe and offering tonight will be taken to be used for that worthy ministry. As we continue our worship tonight, um, before I get into my actual sermon, uh, something I've been doing for the last couple weeks at the churches that I serve, and and I actually did kind of a bad thing here. I did not introduce myself. My name is Michael Hall, and I am the pastor at Sandoval and Boulder United Methodist Parish. And I again want to welcome you tonight. I know this may seem strange if you're tuning in on a podcast, but I have been recording my messages in podcast format for a while now, and maybe it's been for this reason that I have done that so that we can continue to have our worship tonight. But one of the things that I have been doing with the churches that I serve over the last couple weeks, in light of the fact that there is an awful lot of fear going on right now, is I've been giving uh, the folks what I call a twofer, or a two for the price of one, giving them a little mini-sermon during prayer time before we get into the main sermon. So I've got a couple of psalms that I would like to read to you all tonight. And, you know, one of the things worth knowing is that in times of difficulty, in times of fear, and in times of worry, the psalms are a wonderful place to turn if you're needing encouragement and if you're needing peace. 
And I've got a couple psalms I'm going to read tonight. But the first one I'm going to begin with is a psalm of David. I know that you're all going to recognize it. It is Psalm 23. And it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You know, as I read that psalm, and bear with me, I've been known to chase rabbits before. I will try to keep my rabbit hunt to a minimum tonight. But something that I thought of when I was reading Psalm 23 and the psalm that we're going to read here uh, to close this portion of the service, Psalm 91, is I'm reminded a little something about my the people of my ancestors. A little background on me. Those of you who know me probably know that I play the bagpipes. I am of Scottish background. Um, my dad and I obviously come from the Hall family. The Hall family was a minor clan that were border reavers in southern Scotland and northern England. And uh, one of the amusing facts about my family was at one point the British government had an order out that all halls were to be shot on sight. I'm uh, not really sure why. I think my family at one time was a little bit ornery. We'll just put it at that. But I have Scottish background, and on my mother's side, there is very, a very strong uh, English background. My mother's maiden name is Middleton. You may recognize that as the last name of the future Queen of England, Kate Middleton. And I am proud of my ancestry, no more so than any other person should be proud of their ancestry, but I am proud of it. And there is one episode in the history of the people that I descend from that I am very proud of is the way that the British people in general conducted themselves during the Second World War. This is actually going to figure in a little bit into my sermon tonight here in a little bit. But one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that the government in Great Britain had to make a series of posters to encourage the people. If you're not familiar with uh, the British field of war during the Second World War, you need to know that the British were regularly bombed by the German Blitz from 1939 through 1941. This put incredible stress on the people and on the economy of Great Britain. Naturally, people would be prone to panic, but the government made these posters to try to give people a sense of peace and calm, and they were ones that were similar to posters that we saw around here at that time, encouraging people to be careful with military secrets, to join the military, and to be strong and courageous. 
But there was one poster that was never released during the war that I think we're actually all very familiar with today. But there was a poster that was made that was only intended to be posted in the event that the Germans actually physically invaded the United Kingdom. Okay, and this poster was designed to encourage the people to keep calm, but to continue in their fight. And you may know what it says by now and what I have said, and it is the famous British statement, keep calm and carry on. Folks, we live in times that are very much prone to panic and hysteria. And one of the things that God calls us to be as Christians is to not give in to fear. Fear is destructive. Fear is what causes people to hoard things that they don't need and then in an act of greed try to get more for it than what it's worth. Fear causes people to harm other people because they think it's going to help themselves. We need to be in prayer over the current pandemic that is going on in our world. What I can tell you, and my faith tells me this, I believe God is telling me this, is that yes, the numbers of coronavirus sufferers are probably going to go up over the next few weeks, but I also believe that within a month to two months, we will probably see things start to calm down. So if we will do as our British cousins did during the Second World War and keep calm and carry on and continue to love each other and help each other, meanwhile doing all of the precautious measures that have been recommended to us, such as washing our hands, social distance when it's necessary, and to avoid crowded spaces, I believe that God is going to carry us through this. And with that, I want to read another psalm to you before we go into our second prayer tonight. The psalmist writes in Psalm 91, Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust Him. For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. Amen. Let us take a moment and pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you especially for the promises in your psalms to be with us, guide us, and direct us. 
We take faith in Psalm 23, knowing that you will never leave us, that you are going to be with us and protect us with your mighty rod and staff. We pray in these times of difficulty, we pray in these times of fear, that you would make us your people of peace to bring calm in a chaotic world. We pray that you would use us to share your love with others, to be those people who will help their neighbors in need. Meanwhile, give us the wisdom to take precautions, to be careful ourselves, so that we do what we can to halt the spread of this disease. In the name of Jesus Christ, I cast out all powers of sickness and of death. For Jesus has died and risen again, conquering death, conquering the last enemy. And he is, will put it under his footstool for all time. We praise you, gracious God, for your love and provision in these days. And we pray that you guide us and direct us as we continue in our worship tonight. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Tonight, as you are, first let me begin, as you're probably aware of by now, we've been uh, looking at a series in our cluster messages on folks who were directly connected to Jesus' passion. And so let us begin with reading uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning with verse 28. And we'll read through chapter 19, verse 16. One of the things that my parishioners would probably be willing to tell you is I am, uh, for better or worse, fond for long passages of Scripture. So if this is a little much for you, please forgive me in advance. It says, Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way that he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leaders, leading priests, brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, So you are a king? Jesus responded, You say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, He is not guilty of any crime. But you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. 
Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Look, here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law, he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover, and Pilate said to the people, Look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. What, crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. This is the word of God. For the people of God. During the Nuremberg trials, which served to bring justice to certain Nazi war criminals at the end of the Second World War, one particular Nazi officer was being questioned at trial by the prosecution. And when confronted with the reality of his crimes, that he had been responsible for the deaths of countless Jews gypsies, and others deemed undesirable by the Third Reich, his response was, I was only doing my duty. Supposedly, the prosecution responded by saying, you will burn in hell for your duty. The word duty implies obligation. One is required to do something because of something else. A parent has a duty to care for their children, but that duty hopefully arises out of a sense of love for the child. A soldier has a duty to salute a fallen comrade at his burial, but hopefully out of a sense of patriotism and brotherly love. But duty for the sake of duty can be a dangerous thing. If people act merely out of a sense of 
I have to do this thing in order to maintain my position or preserve a system or to keep people pacified, then duty can lead us to commit unspeakable acts such as those that I have already mentioned as committed by the Nazis. As you are aware by now, as I mentioned earlier, we have this theme going with our Lenten cluster services this year. We're essentially having character studies of various individuals that are part of the passion narrative of Christ's betrayal, his trial, and his crucifixion. Tonight, I chose to examine the character of Pontius Pilate, partially because of my background in history and partially because of my background in government. I decided that this relatively low-level Roman governor has an important role in soteriology. And that, for those of you who don't know what that word means, is a fancy um, seminary word for the process by which we understand salvation to have been accomplished. So what we have to understand is that when Jesus went to the cross, this Although it was him dying for our sins, it was actually so much more. This was Jesus' battle against the dark powers of the world. The dark powers of the world system are those spiritual powers that guide and direct earthly institutions to do unspeakable evil. Once again, think of the Nazis during uh, World War II in Germany. We have organizations, we have groups that act on what they think is good, they act on what they think is in their best interest, but they actually do great harm to themselves and those around them in the world. This is what I speak of when I talk about the dark powers in the world, the spiritual powers that have caused this to be. Now, some of you might be thinking, is this guy talking about demons? Well, sort of in a sense. What we have to understand about spiritual warfare is that although we do see cases of it involving uh, demonic possession, as we traditionally think of, spiritual warfare is actually so much more. It is about us confronting the very real and what does seem to be very sentient evil in our world. I'm just going to give you a little insight into my beliefs. Yes, I do believe that there is a Satan. But for us to give this spiritual power, for us to give it human motives, I think is a mistake. We human beings, as far as we are told in Scripture, are the only ones that are made in God's image. So if we are the ones made in God's image, then that means that these spiritual powers like Satan, and so you know the name Satan means the accuser, they are not made in God's image. So they by nature are not going to act with human motives. I think of them more as the essences of power and evil in our world as power is misused. Not all power is bad, but when it is misused, it is. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, told you I chase rabbits sometimes. When Jesus goes to the cross, it's not just paying the price for our sins, but it is him going to battle against these 
principalities, these powers, these spiritual forces of darkness that exist in our world. Now, some of you might think, well, why didn't Jesus just fight them like we would think of fighting them? Well, let's see. If Jesus did that, would he be any different? Jesus fights the dark powers not by fighting them with hate and anger, but by fighting them with love and compassion. What does Jesus say when he's on the cross? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. He dies willingly, and in doing so, he's going to reveal the dark powers for the sham and the, the charlatans that they are. But I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. So Christ, when he goes to the cross, is taking on the prince of this world. Now, if you want to ask me, historically speaking, who is the individual that represents the powers of spiritual darkness in the world at this time? That is Caesar, the emperor of Rome. The Romans ruled through force. They ruled through brutality. They are very much an example of what happens when world systems allow themselves to be guided by the powers of spiritual darkness. Caesar is the physical embodiment of the spiritually corrupt world order of rule by force, intimidation, death. The strong get stronger and the weak die. And Pontius Pilate is, whether he likes it or not, Caesar's representative. Pilate represents the role of the rule of death in the world. Now, there's very little that we're given about Pilate in Scripture, and my understanding is he was a pretty minor Roman governor in history, so we don't have a lot of information about him. He would have had a military background, and depending on if he started as a common soldier, becoming governor of Judea would have been a promotion. He would have gone up the ranks and been promoted. If he had been a more high-ranking, uh, noble military leader, it is also possible that Judea may have been a demotion. So what is his purpose there? His purpose is to maintain what the Romans called the Pax Romana, which is Latin for the peace of Rome. Now, that might sound nice. Hey, peace. We like peace. This is not the kind of peace, though, like we want to have. Roman peace went like this. Keep order at all costs. Pilate's duty is to do his duty to Caesar, nothing else. And if you need to have an idea of what the Romans will do to impose their supposed peace, I will rewind history just a, a little less than a century back to the Spartacus Revolt. Uh, a gladiator named Spartacus had raised a rebellion against the Roman Republic. Uh, they were defeated, and supposedly thousands of men and women were crucified on the road, the Appian Way, leading to Rome. So this is what the Pax Romana is. And keeping this order was Pilate's focus all the way until the local religious authorities brought a peasant Jewish rabbi in to be sentenced to death. And Pilate actually acts very much bewildered by what is going on. Pilate brings in Jesus and asks him a lot of questions. Who are you? Where are you from? Why are the people doing this to you? 
And he asks Jesus to answer the charges, and he doesn't. Finally, Pilate asks Jesus if he is a king, as his accusers have said that Jesus has said. And Jesus tells him that his kingdom is not like this one. This means that divine rule looks very different from human rule. Human rule looks cruel and violent. Divine rule rules through love and self-sacrifice. And this goes back again to what I was saying. When Jesus confronts the dark powers, he doesn't do it through violence. He does it through love and self-sacrifice. Jesus proclaims that he came to declare the truth. And Pilate begs the question, what is truth? And that's a fitting comment for someone like Pilate. One that acts not out of some sense of moral or ethical principle, but instead acts solely out of a sense of duty to the system. Pilate is a cog in the machine of death that humanity created in the fall. All our sin and all of our selfishness created this system that can still be seen today. Pilate meets the greatest truth in history. He meets truth with a capital T, and his response is essentially skepticism that there are any moral absolutes. This is the kind of man that Pilate is. He has no real, seems to have no real sense of ethical obligation. He is there simply to do his duty and maintain order as Caesar has ordered him. Our society is very much in this place, and we are frankly as complicit as Pilate when we look at the direction that society is going, following a path to utter destruction, and instead of confronting it with the mirror of the cross to show the ugliness of our culture, the violence, depravity, greed, and self-centeredness, the cross which reveals our failings but does so in love, and the promise of restoration. Instead of doing that, we try to appease the culture. We give it what it wants because we're afraid that to do otherwise we would seem prudish, naive, or heaven forbid, a goody-goody. You see, Pilate is just as complicit in Jesus' death because he knows Jesus is innocent. And yet, in order to please the crowd, in order to keep the population passive and avoid an unpleasant visit with Caesar, Pilate orders Jesus killed, knowing full well that he is innocent. Now, Jesus, when Pilate orders him to speak out of fear of death, Jesus responds and says, You have no power over me other than that which was given to you from above. But Pilate reveals his character nonetheless when he gives Jesus order to be crucified. Essentially, I believe his argument is that he is saying that he had to keep order. The good news is that this really is all part of God's plan. To defeat the powers of death, he will let death do its worst. Pilate, in doing exactly what came to him by nature, both becomes a death dealer and his own judge. The death of the innocent man reveals the powers in all of their shame. You see, when an unjust system sends an innocent man to die, we see how unjust it is. We see how corrupt it is. And this is exactly what is happening here. There is nowhere for Pilate to hide. 
He knows that Jesus is innocent. There is nowhere for the Sanhedrin to hide. They know he is innocent. They are stripped of their power. Jesus, in taking the death that we deserved, will take the great weapon of the enemy and render it impotent. History doesn't give us much on how Pilate ends his days. There are basically, from what I have seen, two traditions about Pilate's ultimate fate. One tradition is quite positive and says that sometime after the resurrection, Pilate became an early convert to Christianity. Now, there is another tradition that says that Pilate later committed suicide. Now, in a way, I think these two traditions and the fact that we don't know which it is is quite appropriate. On the one hand, suicide for a disgraced Roman official, and Roman officials were always getting disgraced in some way and getting replaced, was not unusual. And again, in the world system in which Pilate operated, shame and defeat could only be dealt with by death. On the other hand, the fact that even Pilate in all of his complicity in Jesus' death, could also be seen as a potential recipient of grace, the grace of the cross and the mercy of Jesus, offers hope and tells us that no one is too far for the cross to save. We all have duties to perform, but let Pilate be a cautionary example that you never let duty be merely guided by propping up the system Jesus lived a life of duty driven by love of the Father and love of his fellow human beings. Jesus did not shy away from uncovering people's impure motives when he needed to, but he always acted out of a love for people. As we continue in our Lenten observances, in whatever format they might be in the coming weeks, let us embark on self-examination to ask ourselves and ask God, where am I acting in ways that are less than human? Where am I complicit in the corruption of the world? Have the courage to listen and have the courage to change course. Lent is about repentance. And if nothing else, repentance is about changing course for the better. Amen. As we close our service for tonight, let us close in prayer. Gracious God, I pray for everyone out there who may be listening tonight, that you would be with them, that you would bring peace to their hearts, that you would guide us all in these coming weeks, that we might stay healthy and that we might shine your love to others. I believe this is the moment that the church has been waiting for. This is the church's moment to shine in a world so full of darkness and fear and death. Help us in this Lenten season as we come close to the great celebration of Easter to reveal to the world that they no longer need to fear the dark powers, that death is a broken and disgraced enemy, and that Jesus did it all on the cross. And he gives us the promise that if we trust in him, we will have life eternal. We praise you, gracious God. We ask that you go and be with us and bless us until we meet here again, and we will meet again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, and go in peace.